I mentioned that Richard's going to be uh, opening up to us the next in the, the book of Haggai, the next passage in the book of Haggai that we'll be looking at. And we're going to read that now. Um, you'll find it on page 949 of the Bible in the Pew, page 949. We're going to read Haggai chapter 2, uh, verses 10 through to 19. Haggai 2, verse 10 through 19 on page 949. It's entitled, Blessings for a Defiled People. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment... And that fool touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil or other food. Does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures... There were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. And we know this is the word of God. So you've probably been made aware today that today is our our Centenary Sunday here in Kirkpatrick. We've heard a lot about it this morning. Um, Philip's mentioned it tonight. And we've been thinking about it over this year. And there's been some common themes we thought of um, as we thought about this. It's the story of the church of great blessing at the start as it grew. Then this period of decline. But then this last ten years, um, remarkable rapid blessing again in this church. As God's rapidly made you know, a, a community of believers here. I think it's, it's undoubted as we look back, we can see that God has blessed us here at Kirkpatrick. People who've came to faith, people rejuvenated in their Christian life, and well, people coming to church who've never been before. But I also think it's a blessing who's actually here and the gifts God has blessed Kirkpatrick with. And I look in this room tonight, I know many people with many different blessings that I see sitting here in front of me. So when we see something like this happening to Kirkpatrick. It, it happens so fast, it bucks the trend of what's happening in other churches around us, where, where it seems to be going the other way. We've got to ask some questions. 
So why did this happen to us? Or how did it happen to us? How is it that we've come to be blessed here at Kirkpatrick when around us we see what doesn't seem like blessing? Maybe a sociologist, he'll have a go at answering this question. He'll say something like, well, there was maybe some young families happened to come along and your momentum built, and you know, once momentum builds, it attracts a crowd, attracts a crowd, essentially. Or they might say, you know, Kirkpatrick, it, it rebranded. There was this new style, it was less formal, and that just captured the atmosphere, the zeitgeist of that current generation that was looking for new churches to move away from home. But of course, we might want to put more theological hats on to answer this question. So we might say, well, we've been blessed because you know, there's been a great biblical ministry. Christos led this ministry, and that's why you know, there's come to be a church here. Or we can point to many faithful people who, who worked really hard uh, for the church, who prayed really hard, and we want to point to them and say, that's why we've been blessed here. Why do you think we've been blessed at Kirkpatrick? You might have a, a different answer. I'm not saying any of mine were right, but... Why, why do you think there's come to be blessing or at least growth or something like that here at Kirkpatrick? It may not seem immediately obvious how Haggai can actually address that and link in, but hopefully as we, we go through the passage tonight, that's going to become clear. But I also want this passage to be much more general than that. That was just our way in thinking of Kirkpatrick and blessing here. This is a wider question about how do we receive blessing from God. I'm guessing all of us would rather receive blessing from God than curses. So how is it that we go about doing that? So we're into the third prophecy in this book of Haggai. Um, The scene so far, the people, they've returned from exile in Babylon. They're this beleaguered people. Um, They don't feel much like anything. They're a bit humiliated. And they come in their drips and drabs back to Jerusalem. Um, when they're in Jerusalem, they don't have a great start. And Haggai has to come to them and remind them, look, you've built your own houses, you've set up your own farms again, but you neglected to build the house of God, you neglected to rebuild the temple. But actually, the people listen to Haggai's words, they respond to the word of God, and in obedience, they start this work of building the temple. And then, um, they did go through some time of discouragement, Sam looked at that last time with us, but... God is able to bring encouragement to them again, and they go on. So now we're at month three, month three, three months since they started building the temple, the 18th of December, 520 BC, it translates as. Imagine at this stage, the workers, if they think about what they've done, are probably feeling quite pleased in some ways uh, with what they've done. As jobs go, making a temple for God. Right, that's bound to be something that pleases God. They're going to feel like they're in the right place, that for three months they've been on the right track. You know, after all, for, for years, for generations, Israel has been this disaster of a nation. And they've had to go to exile. But now finally, you know, we're weak, we're humiliated, but at least we're on the right track now. God's bound to be pleased with us. Blessing's going to come. It's like a f- football player at the World Cup. He's, he's fallen out of favour with the coach. He's on the bench. But his team's behind and his coach says, you go on and you attack. And this player, he goes out, he scores two goals, they win the match. And he'll look over at his coach, he'll smile and like, you're bound to be pleased with me now. You're going to pick me for the next match. But what if he isn't picked for the next match? 
See, this is what the workers in Jerusalem are thinking. God's bound to be pleased with us. But then they're confused. If what we're doing is so pleasing to God, like building a temple, why are our crop yields so low? Why are we experiencing blight, mildew and hail? Why has there been no blessing in our land at all? So all Jews, they memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So when they hear this three of blight, mildew and hail, they think straight away to Deuteronomy and the curses for breaking the covenant. They'll know not only is it not blessing they're receiving, they're receiving the covenant curses of God. But surely they're acting in obedience. They're building this temple. They're doing the work. Surely this makes God pleased, doesn't it? Well, Haggai, prompted by God, he he looks to shed some light on this question. And he does it in quite an interesting way, in this form of the interview with some priests. It's not a tough interview. These are very basic, easy questions for the priests. It's like when you get a world expert brought onto the news and then they just patronise him with the most simple questions. But anyway, well, let's look at what these questions are. Um, if a person carries consecrated meat, this is verse 12, in the fold of a garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, etc., does it become consecrated? Well, an extremely easy answer for the priests. They say no. If you've got something holy, something consecrated, like this meat that has been sacrificed in a special way, you can't then make it touch your clothes and then let your t- clothes touch everything else and make that consecrated. That's not how it works. Essentially what they're saying, holiness is non-transferable. Then the second question, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body, so their hands have touched the dead body, the dead body's unclean, their hands become unclean. If they now touch other things, do they become unclean? Well, the easy answer for the priests is yes, Uncleanness is transferable. Now, we're, we're maybe not so you know, clued in on the intricacies of Jewish ceremonial law. So let me give another example here. Um, this would be something I've maybe asked to a world expert epidemiologist. Uh, I don't know if we have any in the house, but we do have a doctor. So, Dan, I might, might ask you a few questions here. So we've got um, one healthy patient enters a ward with five patients who have norovirus. And they're all confined together and linked together and intermingling. Will that one healthy patient be able to transfer his health over to the five unhealthy? No, he won't. Health is not transferable. If we go the other way, if we say, okay, what if there is one with norovirus and five healthy and they're in this ward all isolated, will the norovirus be able to be spread out and given to the five healthy? Well, we'll say almost certainly yes, that's going to happen. It's almost inevitable that the disease can then be transmitted. Hopefully that helps understand the point. Holiness isn't transmitted, but this uncleanness can be and can spread and affect everything around it. So the Jews listening to Haggai, they're intrigued. Okay, you're making an interesting point, but we're not quite sure what's going on. So I think verse 14 is going to come as a big shock to them. So it is with this people, this nation in my sight. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. Their sacrifices, they're defiled. Their farm work and their family work, that's defiled too. And most importantly, 
Their work of building the temple, that itself is defiant. Inevitably, this uncleanness it is spread and affects all areas of their lives. So when you think they're building this temple that will please God, they're just building this shell that is tainted. It doesn't please God at all. That's a pretty devastating message for them to hear. They've had three months of hard work. They thought they've been following God's way and doing the perfect thing, making him pleased. But really, instead of building a holy house, it's just an unholy mess. Now, for our turn to feel the shock, whatever we do, whatever we offer, that's also defiled. Family life is defiled. Work life, your charity, that's defiled. Your Christian service, that too is defiled. So we've worked up to this uncomfortable conclusion quite quickly. So let's take some time to think about the challenges that there's and some of the implications and how we can say these things. So first, God's favour cannot be earned. See, the Jews, they assumed that if they had the temple among them, that meant God was among them too. They treated it in some ways like a lucky charm. They had this outward form of the temple or their charm and thought that having that, the outward form, made everything good. But of course, it's man who looks at outward forms. God looks at the inner, at the heart. So you can understand their thinking. They said, okay, the temple represents the inner reality that God is with us. So as long as we keep the temple, God will be with us. But you see, by focusing on this outward form that they had control on, they were dictating the terms of the relationship with God. They thought, if we make this temple, God is bound to be with us. God is bound to be pleased. In a way, they were making this sort of cosmic contract with God that they were in control of the terms of. We do something that you like, God, and in return, you do something for us that we like. You'll bless us. So I don't think we're too far away from this ourselves. Of us holding the reins of our relationship with God... Um, of holding out into these, some of these outward forms or tr- making cosmic contracts. Something like, if I commit to coming to church for a while, God, then you're going you're gonna to sort this thing out, sort this problem out for me. You're going to look out for me. Thinking, maybe I had a good quiet time this morning. I'm in a really good place. I was even speaking to some people about Jesus recently. God, you're bound to be more pleased now than what you were. Um, we've got discipleship groups at Kirkpatrick. We might think, okay, if we just get the discipleship groups, the structure working perfectly, and we were feeling well as groups, then God is bound to bring blessing to Kirkpatrick and see growth because we've got the structure and everything in place. Or for me, I've written a sermon this week. God's bound to be pleased with that. See, these works of our hands, we can treat them as lucky charms. And then we assume God's favour. But we can't manipulate God, especially if we know exactly what we're bringing to him. And that's what our next challenge is. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64. See, the works of our hands are thoroughly unclean. What we do in all areas of life, in the home, the work, in church, all these areas, our work is contaminated. 
I spent a summer designing electronic sensors for use in liquids and it was one of the most frustrating jobs I've ever had because it required me to keep some liquids extremely pure. So I had pure deionized water. That meant I couldn't have any salts in it at all. And this was nearly impossible for me to do more than one or two tests at a time because inevitably there'd be dirt or salt or something on some of the apparatus and it would contaminate my whole batch. Now I could try and add more purified water in but that would be no good because once it's contaminated, it spreads through the whole thing. I could skim some off the top, but that would still be contaminated. The salt spread through the whole thing. And that's what sin is like. It contaminates the whole. It spreads its way through. The whole lot is sinful. The whole person. It's a thing that we call total depravity. See, the Bible teaches us that from birth, we're sinful. And every part of us is affected by sin. This doesn't mean we're 100% sinful. We could all imagine how we could do more wrong. We could all imagine how we could be more sinful. Not as evil as we could be. But 100% of what we do is tainted to some degree by sin. Some salt has got in the water and has spread through it all. Now sometimes that's obvious for us um, when we do a wrong thing for a wrong motive. It can be then more subtle. We do the right thing, but with a wrong motive. But it can be even more subtle again where we can't even clearly diagnose it ourselves. We can't even know our own motives because the sin is so deep within inside us. It means that every work of our hands in home life, in work life, in church life, is tainted by sin. So that's why when the Jews come to build this temple, they heap unclean brick on unclean brick. It's no wonder they haven't won over God's favour. What they're presenting to him is appalling in his eyes. So what about when we try to do this work, build God's kingdom here? We try to serve Kirkpatrick or just live out the Christian life? Our every action is tainted by sin, so should God accept it? Can God actually use any of our kingdom building efforts if they're so tainted? Now, this is a little bit depressing. It makes us feel quite worthless and useless. It brings us to rock bottom. Now, last time when we were Haggai, we saw how in the world's eyes, this work of advancing God's kingdom, of living the Christian life, of looking for others, come to know him. That looks really weak in the world's eyes. That was hard enough, but this week we're saying our kingdom building efforts look tainted and pathetic in God's eyes. That's why this brings us down to rock bottom. That's why we need verses 15 to 19. Three times in this section the Lord declares these words, give careful thought. So we do need to think carefully. Otherwise we stay paralysed by our inadequacy. You're practised what we've learnt in this section about how our sin taints us. So let's think carefully on our response. To verse 15, their response has to start with considering how things were. They're to consider the curses that they were seeing. 
So before one stone laid on another, that's what the verse says, that's the last three months of foundation work, but also what's gone before and their harvests of the last few years since returning from exile. So they come back from exile, they started rebuilding their farms, but every year they came to their crops, they expected a heap of 20 measures, instead they got 10. They didn't match expectations, everything was lower. Not only were their yields disappointing, all the works of their hands were cursed by the blight, the mildew and the hail, which we talked about earlier. All the works of their hands. Even though they were doing this good deed of building a temple, but remember that good deed doesn't transfer, that's non-transferable, whereas the uncleanness that is and that does taint everything else. Anytime we see mildew, I don't I hope you don't see mildew that often. We're not thinking straight to Deuteronomy 28. But what about the other curses we see in life? Now, in the West, we do like to isolate ourselves from these things, but every so often, they break into our lives. Things like illness, decay, natural disasters, death. Do we realise that our world is cursed See, sin has tainted the whole world and it's tainted our lives and relationships. So then once we realise this curse, which this passage is helping us to do, what does God expect of us? And verse 17 tells us that. He expects us to turn to him, to see that we need him to remove the curse, the curse of sin in our lives and in our hearts. But Look also in verse 17, Israel doesn't turn to God. He's the one they need. It should be abundantly clear when they think back and see all these curses, but they don't choose to turn to God, the only one who can help them. And nor do we. Naturally, we don't turn to God because the problem of our sin is so deep that it even stops us doing that. But from verse 18, things are about to change. From this day on, give careful thought again. Is there yet any seed in the barn? So it's December time. That means in Israel, the seeds would have been planted. They planted them late October. So this is a month of waiting. There's no farm work to do. All you can do is wait. You've used all your seeds. Your barn is empty. And you can wait. Now they can think, we're getting a good, we'll get a good harvest, a poor one. They don't know. But they can make a good guess. The last few years... You know, there have been no, no pomegranates for them. There's been no olive trees. There's been no figs. They can guess that once again, they're going to get a poor harvest. But then God announces in the last line, you don't know what's going to happen. From this day on, I will bless you. Now, where did that come from? So I hope you're with me in seeing the surprise of this. It doesn't fit with the logic of what we've just seen this passage develop. So pretty much the tone's being, you're more sinful than you realise. Every work you do is tainted by sin. And even though you're cursed, you don't turn to me. Oh yeah, I'm going to bless you. The logic doesn't sit. It's not immediate to us. So let's take a step back and see what's happening from Israel's eyes. Three months they've been obedient and built this temple. Albeit we know now that it's a tainted temple. Blessing doesn't come on them straight away. 
And then they're confused that the curses remain. However, this great blessing comes three months later. So is God just slow in rewarding their obedience? Or actually does the delay show us that the reward is nothing to do with their obedience? If the blessing had come straight away, the people would have had no doubt that they made that straight connection. That blessing comes because we've done a good thing. Like you give a dog a treat when it gives you its paw. The dog makes the association. His action has been rewarded. But because of the weight, we can't say this. A dog won't make a connection if he gives you his paw and three months later you give him a treat. And neither should Israel here. Israel shouldn't make a connection between their temple building and this blessing that comes from God. Also, they haven't really done a good thing. They've built a tainted temple. You know, the dog doesn't get a treat if he chews up your slippers. So why then are they blessed? Why is this weight? Well, if it's nothing to do with performance, in fact their performance merits curses, why are they blessed? Because in God's time, God decides to completely of himself. That's why there's a three-month wait to show it's not earned. God's not being coerced. He's not being persuaded. So let's return to that original question from the start. Why has Kirkpatrick been blessed? Because God decided to. He wasn't persuaded to or fulfilling his side of some contract, some cosmic contract. We're good, therefore he must now be good to us. Any blessing comes all from God at his initiative. So none of us can boast. Even when we put theological hats on, we're too quick to point to human achievements as the reason for blessing. We want to point to Christoph's ministry or to point to the people, the people who, who faithfully prayed. But these things don't cause God to bless us. These are a result of God blessing us. God blessed Kirkpatrick by giving us men and women who prayed. God blessed us by bringing Christoph and using his ministry. He didn't have to use it, but God caused that blessing. See, this is the means of blessing rather than how we persuaded God to then come and bless us. It'd be a wrong way of thinking if we focus on these forms, remember these outer forms that we have some control over and say that that's how we have manipulated God. Instead, we recognize God first as the one who brings blessing, who initiates it all. He decided when to bless us and he decided the means to do it. Not because he was impressed by Kirkpatrick. In fact, I think you could make strong case for the opposite. It brings him more glory to use something weak and unimpressive and tainted and then to bring blessing here. See, centenary is a time we can look back and contemplate on what's gone before. It'd be an awful thing given the history of our church if we look back and praised ourselves, saying haven't we done well and using some smug self-congratulatory tone especially if we try and compare ourselves to other churches. That would be awful because the reality is we haven't done that well. I hope this passage makes that clear that even our prayers are tainted. 
the reality is God has brought blessing to Kirkpatrick and he is the one to be praised. The centenary means we praise God. So I frame tonight's sermon by thinking about our church Kirkpatrick where of course this speaks much wider. Individually, we can get confused when seeking God's blessing as well. We make these deals with God. I'll come to church and you'll answer this prayer. Or we congratulate ourselves too much. You know, I've done really well in being more disciplined in Bible reading or prayer. And of course, we strive to be disciplined. And of course, God answers prayer. But we must get rid of any thought where we congratulate ourselves. Because the reality is, all of our work is tainted by sin. And everything we do must come from God. Anything good that comes our way comes because of God's grace. And that's the big point this passage ends on. The grace of God. The last line, remember how unexpected that is? But that's the nature of grace. It is something undeserved that God has decided to give to us. This passage builds up how much these people didn't deserve blessing. We've seen this, but then God gives it to him. That's grace. And that's the only way we can receive blessing, individually or as a church here, because of God's grace. And finally, what about that ultimate blessing, that blessing of eternal life in heaven with God? How do any of us receive that? Well, not by persuasion, not by the works of our hands, not by fulfilling a cosmic contract but by the grace of God, by God unexpectedly deciding to just give it to us. (coughs) Undeserved goodness that he gives to his people. And how do we receive this grace? Well, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark is a, we've been giving out copies of Mark's gospel and we're going to be focusing on it some more over the next months. And I think there's a great link to this in Mark 1 verse 40. It's the story of a man with leprosy. The man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Now, if you've been following along tonight, there may have been some things that bugged you that seem like conundrums that we can't solve. How is it that this, this desperate cycle that things can only get worse, can only become more tainted, that health cannot be passed, that's, it seems impossible. How can we ever be in a right place with God? And that is the problem. But it's only a problem until Jesus steps into the picture. Because when Jesus steps into the picture, look what he does. In 41, filled with compassion, he touches the unclean man, the man with disease, with no health. He carries this label of unclean. And Jesus, instead of getting, when he touches him, instead of the uncleanness passed to him, the health is passed to this man. This logic that we had before, when Jesus comes, he's the only one who can do it the other way. He's the only one who can remove curse. He's the only one who can bring health. 
and cleansing. See, that's the grace that this blessing is all about. It is Jesus intervening into this and being the one who can bring health into the hopeless cycle. We don't earn it. We don't negotiate for it. Our works don't persuade. Jesus gives it to us through his work. It's not our talents or experience or even our piety. We bring nothing but our sinful selves. And Jesus gives us everything. He gives us this health. So we must come humbly. This attitude where we boast or are proud, even in, in Kirkpatrick, and we realise that it's God who has done this work. And how humble we are for all we have is tainted works. But one more thing we have. Jesus' grace given to us. Bringing that health. The only one who can break that cycle. In a moment we're going to sing the words of the hymn, but um, Rock of Ages. Let me just use the third verse as our prayer as we finish. Dear Lord, we, we want this passage to humble us in our service. For you, Lord, we want to not boast, especially in our centenary here, but also in our own lives. Lord, we want these words to be our own. Lord, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling. Naked we come to thee for dress. Helpless we look to thee for grace. Foul we to the fountain fly. Wash us, Saviour, or we die. Thank you, Jesus, that you bring health, that you bring cleansing. And Lord, help us to be humble as we come to you. Amen.